1: Welcome friends to another edition of on the Rails with me, your host Forrest Whitman and we want to welcome you to this caboose. It's a little chilly here and so we're uh, we put a little coal on the in the coal stove in the old caboose. Uh, I've washed the windows up in the up in the cupola so that uh, our guests can sit up in the sit up in the angel's seat as we roll along and uh, tell some stories and talk about life on the rails and um, hopefully encourage you all to to take a train trip sometime soon and so we want to welcome as our special guest Andrew Cox now andrew claims to have ridden almost as many almost as many miles as uh, em frimbo and uh, i don't know if that's true or not but let's get let's get to andrew and uh, while we do that, we always want to mention that this this caboose is pulled by our engineer, Richard White, a.k.a. Rick White. And uh, he is the engineer. So if he butts in here and says, you're all wrong, or you said one of the nasty words, or no, we never say nasty words. But uh, anything like that, that's, that's that, voice. Yeah. that voice. That voice. That voice you hear. It's like the voice of God. You hear that voice from the background. Enough of that. So uh, Andrew, uh, welcome. And how many miles do you think you've ridden? And do you think you've come close to the record set by E.M. Frimbo?
2: <clears throat> uh, well, Rick and Forrest, thanks for having me. It's, it's, I'm glad that we were finally able to set this up. What Do you know what the record mileage is by this figure you're talking about?
1: Uh, you know, it was right. No, I don't have it right here, I'm sorry to say. And it doesn't matter because yeah, he wrote the rail column for the New Yorker for years, and um, the journeys of E.M. Frimbo by rail. Uh, I and he always would say that he's, you know, that he's the champion, and uh, but I'm sure there are many who come close. You you do you have any idea how many miles you've r- uh, ridden or?
2: Um. Well, I let's see i'm thinking most of the amtrak long distance routes from the west coast to chicago i think they're around 1800 miles each or so somewhere around there sounds right yes and besides the southwest chief i have done the coast starlight the california zephyr and the empire builder more times than i can count (laughs) um wow that's wonderful Yeah, mostly, most of my time has been spent on the California Zephyr and Coast Starlight. I've probably done the Zephyr route round trip maybe 12 to 15 times. Wow. And similar numbers on the Coast Starlight. And that's luckily because I was employed for a while on a private rail car that did trips across the nation on Amtrak.
0: Oh. Oh.
1: So those are working miles for myself. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful.
0: And Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that private rail car?
2: Yeah, so it started with my grandpa, and he's the one who got me into trains from the get-go, but he always did this big family trip. I have about 17 younger cousins and multiple aunts and uncles, and my grandpa's this very, very frugal man, but once a year, he shells out all of his savings and takes us on a big, epic trip. Um, so we've, we've done like villa trips to the Caribbean, we've gone to Mexico, but since we're both trained people, I was like, hey grandpa, why don't we do a private rail car trip with the whole family? And he was like, that sounds like a great idea. And we started with a day trip. I live in San Jose, California. So we started with a San Jose to Los Angeles, spend a few days in Los Angeles and then take the train back up. And it was amazing. And we did ended up doing that a couple different times. And as I got older in college, uh, I asked them, I was like, hey, I have serving restaurant industry. I love trains. Can I hop on as a porter or a steward on your train car? And they said, absolutely. Most of, the tra- most of their business is in summers. So for most of the, my summers in college, I would fly out to Minneapolis, St. Paul, where the cars were located, and I would do the entire Amtrak system summer, all summer long working on the private car.
0: Wow. Wow.
2: That's so, so exciting. Yeah, it was amazing.
1: Now, um, tell us a little about the interior of a private car. When, when, when they come by, well, at least back in my day when I worked on the railroad, if a private car came by, we'd always, we were a little envious. We wanted to sort of, we always said, well, will you show us around? Can we, and so, sometimes they would, sometimes they couldn't because if the owners were, were present, of course, they, they couldn't. But uh, say a little bit about some of these private cars.
2: Yeah, so I worked mostly on one specific private car, which is called the Sierra Hotel. And it's an ex-CB&Q dome car that ran on the original California Zephyr. Uh, It used to be a dorm lounge, so it was where most of the crew stayed. And it also had a little coffee shop and kitchen down below the dome. Um, I believe in the early 2000s, it went into private ownership, and they spent almost a million bucks refurbishing the entire car. And they also added a back platform on the back. Uh, So it's got a crew room, it's got three sleeper, three sleeper, sleeper roomettes, and then one master bedroom. It's got a full kitchen, a bar, coffee shop, the dome, and then a lounge with a back platform on the back. Amazing. Doesn't that sound like fun for us?
1: That's just amazing. Oh, yeah. And with the whole family and all the, particularly the young kids, golly, they can put their game boards out and... uh, Although our rail travel group, we've we've done some of that. We've occasionally put out some games in the uh, you know in the the view car on the on this effort, and um, well now so the, when I worked for the Burlington, uh, why uh, at least at that time they had uh, three of those uh, domed uh, office office cars, and my recollection was that you climbed up. You climbed up from the lower level where the um, where the, the roomettes were to the sort of the middle level. Was that uh, configured that way still or?
2: Yeah, that sounds right. So if you're going from the front of the car back, it's all of your bedrooms. And then there was like a crew closet and such. And that was where the staircase up to the dome was. And then you, if you were continuing to the back of the car, you would do two steps down to the to the kitchen and coffee shop, and then you would do your steps back up into the lounge in the back. Which, at when the car was in its original shape, that lounge was all roomettes. Wow,
1: way fun. Well, yeah. we certainly have some. My wife and I have some happy happy memories about that particular car, and is some of that some of that stuff that I'm sorry to say because it, it, Amtrak is still running some of that original equipment and um I, I mean I, they probably really shouldn't be i mean they've they've done a good job of keeping it up, but um, I've got some statistics on how many may have, well some of those some of those years they they'd run that every day, yeah. you know and oh boy,
2: yeah I, I know think-
1: how Go ahead, Andrew.
2: I think the last historical pieces that were running on consistent long-distance trains were the Pacific Parlor cars on the Coast Starlight. Uh,
0: um, they were
2: ex-Santa Fe El Capitan lounge cars, and they were just taken out of service. I think maybe two years ago, um, and and that was a pretty sad moment when those got taken off the regular consist.
1: We loved those, and as as I walked as I walked into them, what what impressed me was that. First of all, that the they still wore the uh, Santa Fe type uh, little uniforms. The women had on uh, leggings. Did you, you know? Did you remember that, Andrew? The 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 women had on leggings. They had had on uh, and those little little Santa Fe skirts. Except these ones said Amtrak. They'd replaced those. And then the big white blouse. And then hanging down the middle, why the. Um, identification card in the key ring and the little hat the little the little Amtrak hat I I, they probably hated it the women who worked in there they they probably said these are really dorky uniforms but I think the rest of us thought they were pretty pretty special uniforms and now you probably well you didn't wear a uniform you were in private service yeah
2: correct but uh yeah we we had to be formally dressed um we would be able to kind of wear more casual clothes through the daytime and then for dinner service we would change into uh tie and vest and the whole get up uh, but it was quite an experience
0: and Andrew, oh my was that a uh, was that a union job
2: no 100 uh private no 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 union at all um But it allowed for some nice flexibility. It was a great way to travel, to earn a little bit bit of money through college. And even though it's working, it's hard not to just start staring out the window and enjoying the sights. It was still probably one of the greatest experiences in my train history so far.
1: Wow. Wow. But it also sounds pretty exciting to be on there with your cousins, your uncles, uh, your dad. Your dad must have felt like the patriarch. He must have. Must have felt like the honored, uh, the honored king of the rails there.
2: Definitely, and because my, my grandpa, he's a depression baby, and he never thought in his wildest years that in his retirement he'd be on a private rail car with hosting his family. Just a not not even possible to think about in the 1930s through 50s. Boy,
1: and of course, in in those years, the, the um, federal government, as a matter of fact, took a lot of interest in oh, long distance passenger and a lot of interest in in, um, street cars, electric street cars, things like that. So so as to keep the cost of getting on uh, a car to uh, like, you know, 25 cents. So that for a quarter, you could get on the street car and you could ride from, well out here in our part of Colorado, you could ride from Denver down to Pueblo, could ride from Pueblo all the way out to La Junta and and then up north, all the way to Cheyenne. You could do that for a quarter on the the streetcars. But, and that's because the federal government was, you know, putting some money into it. Not as much now, here's my gripe. Stand by for the usual gripe. Close your ears there, Mr. White. (laughs) But, but, you know, compared to the amount of money we put into airports and airplanes and airlines and, we we could have a wonderful rail system, really, really, as nice as it was in those days. Uh, not maybe for a quarter a ride, but you know. Any, anyway, enough of my harangue on this point. But what do you think about my harangue, Andrew? You don't have to. You don't have to like You can disagree. You know, we're we're it's just it's we're back in the caboose. We can say whatever we want. But
2: uh, <laughs> I I think I was really worried about the the existence of long distance rail specifically in the United States, especially COVID really, really hurt the industry. But it seems like with our current uh, administration, they just celebrated the 50th anniversary of Amtrak. And it seems like they're committed to dumping quite a bit of money into preserving long distance trains and also increasing kind of what you're talking about, more localized rail traffic or rail travel um, and kind of beefing up uh, short distance commuter Amtrak train infrastructure, which makes me feel hopeful about moving forward.
1: Well, they don't call him Amtrak Joe for nothing. Exactly. We talk about E.M. Frimbo writing a lot. I mean, Joe Biden, sometimes he, he wrote five times a, a week. And at the 50th anniversary, did you notice at the, um, what was the, where was the 50th anniversary? Wasn't it Philadelphia?
2: I believe it was in Philadelphia,
1: yes. Yeah, 50th. And one of the speakers was the uh, gentleman who had been the, the conductor for years on that train with the same train that uh, Biden rode. And the two of them had long, long talks about uh, the future of America and what should be done. And uh, that, that's, that's kind of neat, too.
2: Yeah, I always say it's, it's, it's hard to keep, to justify long distance Amtrak travel because at this point, it's close to the same cost as driving or flying and it's significantly slower, but I think it's pretty important to recognize the history and kind of the experience of long distance rail travel. And I'm glad that uh, some political figures and a lot of local figures still appreciate that it should still be carried on.
1: Yeah, and you can argue the time too. Uh, how much time it does really take because, you know, from our part of the world, well, from, from Southern Colorado, you've got to f- probably putting in a, Oh, I don't know how many hours, just getting to the parking lot, getting from the parking lot into the main hall, getting through the security, which sometimes can take hours. I mean, literally to, to get through now. And, and, and then you've got to, you know, catch your flight. So you and you do that again at the other end so i don't know i i you know yeah it's faster theoretically but there's a lot more involved you know at each end whereas with your mj well Amtrak train you you just walk in the station and get on i mean that's what you do right and um, yeah how, how now you haven't been on since covid um i've only been on once um our engineer however has been on since covid and um if we can get him out from get him out from his engine up there get him back to the caboose if we what what if we put some bacon and eggs on the old coal stove back here got start frying up some bacon and you think we could lure him back here to talk to us a little bit there
0: I was lucky to uh, take the train, Forrest and Andrew, from uh, La Junta, which is kind of our nearest train hub. Junta, Colorado to, uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico. It was very reasonable. I would comment to, I find Amtrak's coach fares to be very reasonable in comparison to airline travel. But I do find the, uh, overnight, um, Pullman accommodations to be, to be high. Um, you know, it's, it's a luxury thing. And, um, I, I don't know, Forrest, he has a lot more money than I have. He's been on those sleeper cars.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention the bunks back here in the caboose. Are, they're pretty commodious.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, now, you've also gone the other way. You've gone to uh, St. Louis.
0: Yeah, I've gone to... Now, through, uh, now
1: did you keep your mask on? Uh, you're supposed to keep your mask on, I gather, until you get...
0: You stay pretty well covered up, but there's a little bit of uh, room in there when you're on your own seat um, and, you know, you're not moving around the car. You can let that mask down, but moving around the car, they, they want you masked up. And you know, I, I don't know if that's changed or not. Um, they might have uh, tightened down on that a little bit. Yeah, my my grandpa
2: and I are trying to do a, we really want to go visit his family out in Kansas City. And we want to, the only trip we haven't done is the Southwest Chief. Um, so we want to go down to Los Angeles, take the train from Los Angeles to Kansas City. And I'm trying to do some research to figure out when are they going to lift the mask mandate? And I haven't been able to find any information on if that's going to, happen anytime soon or not but that's the beauty of having your bed your own bedroom and you can if you want to be in the lounge car the dining car of course keep that mask on but then it does have a nice private place in the bedroom if you do want to take the mask off and hang out there which is a a bonus but it's an expensive bonus
1: (laughs) yeah well what about though once you're seated in your seat in the in the viewing spaces particularly the the vista dome i would imagine since that's not public in the, well, in the sense that, well, I see what you're saying that they might, you might have to keep your mask on even in the Vista Dome might be.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They say on the entire train. And I think the only place where you're, where a conductor's not going to cruise by you to ask for you to put your mask on would probably be in your room. That's probably the only place, at least right now. Wow.
1: So how are you going to eat your, how are you going to eat your hot dog in the, in the Vista dome? I mean, surely they make some allowance for that.
2: Right. There's, that's like the airline rule right now, right? You must keep your mask on unless you're in the process of eating or drinking. And then the the realm in which they decide how long it takes to eat or drink, that's up to each individual person, I guess.
1: I'm a slow eater.
2: <laughs> a so, very slow eater. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, uh, Huh. Well, that's yeah. And now their ridership is definitely down. I, uh, trains magazine was going to do a little number on that. I don't know that they that they did, but um, pretty dire number, boy. Way down some of those trains. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I have a friend who's a conductor on the regular pool on the California Zephyr. So he covers the territory from Oakland when they leave in the West up to Sparks and where he'll crew change there. And he says he'll have some days on the Zephyr where they have te- teens, like maybe 10 to 15 people on the entire train. Wow. So it's, ridership is definitely down, but I, I anticipate it's going to only increase – like from now moving forward as more people get vaccinated, more people want to travel. I've also seen Amtrak doing a lot of cool promotions celebrating their 50th anniversary. So on some routes, you can get a $5 companion fare, where you pay a full price ticket and you can bring one person along for five bucks. So hopefully that brings ridership up.
1: Boy. Well, Rick, do you want to be my companion? i okay. us
0: got the five bucks for, for us.
1: For five bucks, we can... Uh, you know, we can get on the train in La Junta and, um, I don't know, Bob's your uncle. We could go to L.A. We could go to Sparks. I don't know. what. Where is Sparks? <laughs> it's in Nevada someplace.
2: Sparks is about a few miles east of Reno, Nevada. Ah.
1: And that's, well, if they change crews there, wow, I hope those guys don't have to overnight in Sparks. That wouldn't be any fun it's
2: i've heard it's no fun but there's a massive golden nugget hotel that overlooks the tracks so it's definitely a destination where as a rail fan for myself ride the train out to sparks hop off in sparks spend the night in a cheap hotel with trackside views it's perfect
0: yeah oh it... and why don't you uh kind of speak to that a little bit andrew i know that you've uh, done quite a bit of photography of trains and why don't you uh, speak to that as we uh, kind of close out this half of the show yeah so uh
2: I, I started off with modeling trains with my grandpa he's the influence over my passion for railroads and we did our first trip to the Tehachapi loop in 1999 and he handed me a film camera just a cheap point and shoot film camera and said here you go He didn't teach me how to use it. He didn't teach me any rules about photography. And I'm glad I have those pictures, but they are terrible photos. Mm -hmm. And I just, over time, I got obsessed with the idea of documenting railroads and taking pictures and just kind of got better and better and better. I dabbled in video when when HD video was coming out in the mid 2000s. And then just in the last few years, I've really elevated chasing trains. So I'm probably out on the road photographing mainline freight trains probably two or three times a month. So my wife is not too happy about it, but I'm loving it. And so like my, my, my most recent trip was Tehachapi. I go to Tehachapi quite often. It's a pretty spectacular location, but basically most of the hotspots on the West Coast I have photographed. Wow,
1: now for our wider audience, uh, let's run a few things by. The, the loop piece describing is, um, well, tell us a little about it. It's, it's, first of all, it's very steep. And, and secondly, it's one of the few places in the world where you can see the back end of the train from the front end of the train, pretty much, yeah.
2: Exactly, yeah, so in in the late 1800s, the Transcontinental Railroad was getting completed on the classic line from Omaha, Nebraska over the Sierras into California. Uh, The Santa Fe Railroad, along with the Southern Pacific, they were trying to basically race to San Pedro Harbor in Southern California to get all of the action that was happening in the boom town called Los Angeles. Um, that route was surveyed from basically linking the Southern part of California's Central Valley with the, uh, des- the Mojave desert. Um, and it's one of the only locations in the world. I believe there's three other locations where to gain elevation, the train does about a mile and a half loop over itself. Um, cause that's the maximum way to get elevation in the smallest amount of space. Um, So that is your that is your lifeline from California and the northern west coast into the southern California uh, freight action. Um, And Tatchby Pass, it's still used today. We're probably seeing about 30 trains on average a day and some of the steepest grades that are still on class one railroads. So I think the most the steepest grade is around is close to three percent on the pass.
1: Three percent.
2: Very steep.
1: That's awesome.
2: Yeah. yeah. So it's a really dramatic place to watch railroads happen. So when I'm chasing trains, I have a railroad scanner. I'm listening to the crews, talk to the dispatcher. And we also have a computer program called ATCS. So I can see where all the switches are lined. Um, so I'll, I'll position up in the pass and it's a beautiful symphony of trains moving past each other. Cause there's a lot of single track, but you have a lot of trains. So it requires a lot of meets, a lot of dispatching puzzles to get the trains moving through.
1: Dispatching puzzles indeed, and presumably giving priority to Amtrak trains. Um, that's a bit up in the air these days as well. If you read trains magazine at all, or railroad, especially Railroad Age, Railway Age magazine, they have dealt with that a lot. I mean, there there is a, a, a bill up actually in Congress allowing uh, Amtrak to sue, <laughs> to sue. Uh, to Sue the landlords, so to, so to speak, to sue the um, class one railroads, which they can't do now. They can ask the attorney general uh, to put pressure on when, when there's egregious, um, what should we say, uh, when, when priorities being given to uh, their, their own freight over Amtrak over a, a period of time. And that's called a pattern and uh, pattern and practice. So if they get a pattern and practice going, they can ask the attorney general. And then the attorney general, I think sometimes will write a letter and say, gee, you know, uh, on such and such a Southern Pacific route, you've you've put the Amtrak behind a freight train now um, 17 times in the last 21 days. So that's a, a pattern. And You've got to cut it out or we're going to, we're going to go to district court. Well, they never, they never do. I don't, I don't know that they've ever really done it, but now they're going to change the the law. And I think they probably will, or at least it's looking good. Like they will. Mm. And, And at that point, then Amtrak can say, no, we're going to take you to the, we're not going to wait for the attorney general to do something here. We are going to do it ourselves. And, um, I would imagine that may change things. On the other hand, it might, may, might make the class one so so grumpy. Whole oh, now, you know, which I, I don't know. Andrew, have you followed any of that, or I have a little, but
2: yeah, I, I've I, I haven't read into it, but I've seen that there are they're they're switching that policy and advocating for Amtrak to have better on-time performance with legal action of the host railroad. It's interesting. It's kind of it's it's hard to come up with a solution because I don't believe Amtrak pays for any of the signal maintaining, um, for any of the track maintenance, and that's the host railroad's responsibility. But I've been on a train where. We leave Denver on time, and then as we get into busier freight territory through Iowa, Amtrak is going into the siding at every single siding and waiting for a freight train to go by. So we're on time out of Denver, and we're coming into Chicago almost eight hours late. It's not a good look for customer service for Amtrak <coughs> and its ridership. No.
0: <clears throat> hey, for of course, if,
1: you, if you're in your private car and you're, and you're one of the servers there, that might increase your tips because you can, they're going to be there a little longer, have that extra adult beverage. Um, maybe, I don't know, talk to you more. I, it's Well, I don't know. That's just a fantasy, I'm sure.
2: But, <laughs> no, uh, exactly. Here's another drink. We're going to
0: be sitting here for about an hour. So <laughs> enjoy yeah,
1: So enjoy it.
0: Hey, Forrest, let me chime in here. I've got something on the track in front of us. We're going to have to bring this thing to a halt, and it'll probably be a good time for us to uh, take our break at the uh, first half hour of this show. If you want to close it out?
1: We'll close it out. Okay, well, we can climb down, climb down from the caboose here, walk around in the snow a little behind, um, look out over these frozen Cornfields or for wherever we are. I don't wherever we And uh, just we don't want to let Andrew get away though, because uh, maybe we can offer him treats if, if we come back for the second segment here of on the Rails with a really interesting interview with uh, Andrew Cox, who is a real aficionado, uh, has ridden miles and miles and miles, actually worked on some private cars, uh, goes on big family trips, with his 8,000 cousins and 14 other relatives and fills up a private card. What fun. Oh, boy. All right, enough. Here it is, On the Rails. Now, if you want to listen to the podcast of this or listen on iTunes, just go to On the Rails with Forrest Whitman, um, and the podcast is right here at K-H-E-N 106.9. And um, uh, podcasts are a fun way to listen. And so that's it. All right. Are we going to high ball out of here? Are we going to? Well, let's high ball out. Let's. Okay. Let's head end. Have you got? Have you got the switch pulled over there? We're. Okay we got the. Here. We got a green green light ahead. Green light ahead. All right. On the on the three, we'll go. So breathe in, breathe out, do a big high ball. One, two, three. High ball. High ball. High ball. High ball. High ball. High ball. K-Hen is supported in part by Little Red Hen Bakery, located at 302 G Street in downtown Salida. Little Red Hen specializes in hometown fresh-baked bread, bagels, and treats, all made with organic and local ingredients. A full menu, including the wood-fired oven schedule and daily specials, can be found on their Facebook page at Little Red Hen Salida. K-Hen and Little Red Hen – Just two hometown chickens working to keep Salida, Salida.